you need to convince somebody that some effort needs to be spent somewhere, having that data to back you up is invaluable. Hello, and welcome to the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm Robert Furr, and on today's episode, we're going to take a slight divergence from the deep data topics that we normally uh, go into, and we're going to take a look at the 2018 State of DevOps report. Even if you're not familiar with DevOps, we'll give you an overview of what that topic is, and we'll talk about why it's important, whether you are a data scientist, uh, someone who's just getting into data or has heard DevOps but you're not sure what it is, there's a lot of good information in store for you. Um, today joining me is Greg Walters, a consultant at Capco Energy Solutions. He graduated from SMU in 2013 with a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and he's been working with Capco in a variety of DevOps and development roles since then. It was a pleasure sitting down with Greg uh, but to warn you the audio got a little bit wonky on this and it was a really big challenge for us. We uh, tried to record one time and had some issues and had to record it a second time. Even on the second one, there was a shift in the audio about halfway through, so you may notice that. So be prepared about 20-25 minutes in, you might need to adjust your volume slightly. So we'll try to uh, make sure that's not an issue on the future episodes, uh, but please enjoy this, and also you can find show notes that have links to the State of DevOps report and some other materials uh, for this and all of our other shows at ForTheLoveOfData.com. Now let's talk to Greg. Greg, thanks for joining me today. Uh, for those of you that are listening, this is going to sound like uh, the first time you're hearing us talk about this, but for Greg and I, it's actually round two. Uh, we had a little audio snafu during the, the, the first time, so we got to uh, get some good practice in. And I would like to call this a victory lap, but that would mean that we achieved a victory the first time around and the audio failure was anything but that. So uh, thank you for making time in your schedule to, to join me again and talk about the 2018 State of DevOps report. So. We're going to wax philosophically about that, but before that, uh, tell everyone a little bit about yourself and how you got into DevOps and technology and this point in your life. Sure, Rob. Happy to be here. Um, I came into DevOps from a development background, being part of smaller development teams that were responsible for their own infrastructure and their own deployments. Um, and so, you know, infrastructure was that part of it that I didn't want to spend any more time on than I had to. So DevOps was a pretty natural uh, evolution out of that. I spent the past couple of years helping a larger IT department uh, automate a lot of their own IT practices and, and standardize a lot of what they're doing here. Uh, so it's exciting to see what the industry uh, is evolving into. Very good. Well, so I know we've got a lot of listeners that come from a data background. They might be data analysts. They might be data scientists. They might just be people that are curious about different data topics. And not everybody is going to be familiar with DevOps. So Tell me your definition of DevOps or how you would explain it to someone that, that may not be familiar with that term. Sure, yeah. If you're familiar with Agile development too, this is sort of uh, a natural next step where uh, traditionally in, in an enterprise you might have development building an application and then at some point they have their collection of uh, new code or new features that they 
toss over the wall to operations and operations deploys it and puts it into production. And then if anything goes wrong, they have to go back over the fence uh, to deal with development. So there's an uh, unnatural break there. DevOps is about breaking down those silos and joining dev and, and ops um, operations and teams so that the, the development and the deployment and the running of, of all the, the code and the applications uh, is much more seamless and the feedback loops are much smaller and tighter. Okay. And I would say that, you know, if, if you look back, there's, uh, I'm not an expert on the history of agile development, but it's got roots all the way back into lean manufacturing, going back decades, you know, much earlier than even a lot of computer programming is, is more commonly associated with in kind of the 70s, 80s, 90s, kind of client server type of days, even to now. Um, so there's roots back there, but it's all about how you develop faster, you uh, respond to changes more quickly, and um, how you can get things out there kind of iteratively and start building on it rather than having, um, if, if anyone's been in software development for a while, you've done it, probably at least some type of iterative, or excuse me, waterfall development where you did a lot of thinking about what you needed to do and you analyzed it and you designed the heck out of it. And then when you actually got to building it, you realized that all these assumptions that you made or things you thought you knew at the start didn't really apply. So there's all this rework and confusion. And sometimes that even happens once you get it into actual usage, you find out that all the planning that you did and all the thinking that you did, you didn't get it quite right. So this is a way to reduce those cycle times and get people moving on what really matters as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Agile and DevOps 2, um, to maybe a lesser extent, are both about getting the decisions closer to the information. So the people who have the information are making the decisions as much as possible. The decisions are happening closer to when the, the data and the feedback uh, is actually there so that we can make decisions based on uh, better ideas. Okay. Now tell me some of the tools that you use on a daily basis or some of them that you've used across clients. What, what, are, what are some of the ones that um, you've had exposure to and what are some of your favorites? So, I mean, this one is going to be pretty standard across development in general, but uh, I love Git for version control. Um, working across teams that may or may not be working in the same space, um, being able to isolate parts of the application for development and, and combine those changes with your teammates. Uh, is invaluable. Um, Jenkins or, or something like it, like Travis for automating builds is great. Um, something like that is, is a huge step into continuous improvement and continual deployment, uh, continuous integration. Um, so the less you have to think about merging and, and rebuilding your code, uh, the better. If that's happening automatically, then you know sooner when problems are cropping up. Um, Puppet has been making big strides in managing, managing configuration. I love having our environment configurations defined as code that anybody can look at, uh, can replicate, can break out for different environments. Um, Ansible has been another tool uh, in that space that I think is really interesting. It goes about it a slightly different way. Um, but those are some good key tools to start with. And just to be clear here, we are completely tool agnostic on this podcast. We don't have any sponsors paying us lots of money to say any of these. So these are recommendations from the bottom of Greg's heart. And I'll say, I, you know, like I said, I'm not as deep into DevOps as you are, but a couple of things that I've been working with recently, um, I, I like Git for version control, even of documents that I'm working on or queries that I'm writing. I know a lot of people, especially from a data world, that write a lot of queries and a lot of just kind of off the cuff scripts. 
they don't think about using that, but it's it's really helpful to be able to go back and see the history, even if you're just a, a, a one-person show working on a specific task. And then Trello is one that I've gotten into mm -hmm. recently, uh, even tracking things in my personal life, thing, wrangling things with my kids and stuff, and uh, I'm trying to get to... Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking about trying to get my wife to switch to that from the like iOS reminders app, but we're we're a little ways away from that. So somehow I've managed to fail to mention Docker too. Yes. Uh, learning Docker and then learning Kubernetes too is, is what I'm working on now. But um, being able to to just wrap up your entire deployment in a container is fantastic. Uh, goes a long way to, to standardizing that process too and making it easier for people less uh, less familiar with your code base to be able to deploy your code in a really consistent way. Well, so your interest in DevOps and my interest in pretty charts and graphs led us both to the same place, which is the 2018 State of DevOps report. And uh, this report has been put out, I think, since 2012, so about six or I think seven years now. Uh, it's been, it's been uh, coming out. And it's primarily uh, produced by DORA, the DevOps Research an assessment group, I believe, uh, which is, uh, it's kind of a DevOps think tank. And it's got some of the folks that have been with the DevOps uh, movement for a long time and uh, some folks with some, some heavy expertise in um, surveying and, um, and modeling and evaluating the responses to questions. And so this year's report follows in a, in a pretty long line of, of very effective, very um, information-laden reports. But this one is a little bit different than the last few years. And so what were some of your uh, takeaways or some of your uh, initial thoughts on this year's report versus previous years? Yeah, so looking at 2017, for example, it felt a lot more like an analysis of the survey data, um, looking at, okay, these are sort of the clusters of behaviors that we're seeing um, as DevOps really evolves as a practice. Um, 2018 looked look different. It looked like more of a look back across the years uh, to see not just how certain criteria are growing or shrinking, um, but looking at broader macro patterns of, hey, this is how successful uh, organizations uh, have seemed to get there. This, this is the path that success seems to take. Yeah, and I'll say I know that there was a little bit more specific jargon in previous reports, like MTTR was mentioned in previous reports. That's not mentioned at all this year. And so I do think they're going a little bit more general and high level and trying to um, give it a feel that applies across industries, across regions. Um, if you look, uh, I think it's page nine is a breakout on global region. And we'll link up to uh, a link to this report in the show notes and some of the other uh, charts and graphs that we really liked and that, that we're going to talk about. But um, responses for this year, about 40% came from the U.S., 30% from Europe, 20% from Asia, the rest scattered around. So there was at least a, a little bit of representation in all places. Unfortunately, Africa and the Middle East is only 1%. So there's definitely a, a little bit of an uptick that's, that's needed there. Um, it says overall they've surveyed 30,000 people in the last seven years. That works out to about 4,300 people per year. But I'm guessing that's a lot more heavily stacked in more recent years, probably over that 4,300 average and a little bit lighter earlier on. But overall, over all of the uh, reports that they've put out, I think they're all over the 1,000 to 1,200 person sample size, which if I remember correctly from old college poli-sci classes, that was the sample size that you needed to be 
statistically representational of, say, the U.S. as a whole. So overall, they've got some good numbers to draw from. And uh, when I look at it, they, they, they break down by country, so you can see some, some stats there. Uh, one thing that was kind of interesting to me, and I want to get your take on it, Greg, is the, the gender breakdown. Um, so it was basically 79% male, 17% female, and uh, 3 to 4% prefer not to say or other, um, which seems, you know, I, I know in a lot of technical fields, there's, uh, there's somewhat of a challenge of getting equal representation, um, but 80% seem particularly high to me. That does seem a little high to me, too, and I'd like to see it broken down further by industry and, and by department, mm -hmm. um, because I know that at least, you know, if you look at a, a university comp sci program, for example, you're going to see a, a much more balanced, at least, representation than you used to. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we hope to see that, that number equalize more and more as the years go on. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but yeah, that was kind of surprising. And then um, they break it down by industry. This also was kind of interesting to me. So 38% uh, technology, that's not a huge surprise. When you add technology and FS, it's 50%. So 12% for FS, combining those two gives you 50%. So half of all DevOps is, is basically done by tech or FS, um, which seems really high to me. Um, I don't know, do you have any, any thoughts on that? I think it could be a couple of things. I wonder if, you know, if you're in, if your company belongs to one industry, but you work exclusively in the tech department of that industry, if you would consider yourself tech. Mm -hmm. um, but then, too, I, looking at which industries are highly represented here and which are lowly represented, I wonder if it's just a, a matter of how competitive the industry is and yeah. how much demand there is for innovation or you know competition. Who's going to eat your lunch if you're not keeping up? Well, and you might be right. I mean, nonprofit is low at 1%. Energy and resources, which is where most of uh, most of our clients have been, is only 2%. Uh, and then what was really surprising, too, is media and entertainment is only 3%. You know, I would think of that as a fairly rapidly changing competitive field, always trying to be on, on the edge. But They do. They evolve fast. But then I think, too, how many major players are there? Yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe they just they, they can't be a large slice of the pie um, just just by that nature. Um, one thing that I, I find kind of interesting about the energy being only at 2% is when you, when you think about a lot of energy companies, you know, reliability of what they're running, be it a power plant, be it a transmission network, anything like that, is extremely important. And one of the things that DevOps does is it lets you be much more consistent and have a much more analytic view of, you know, what, what you're doing when you're changing systems, how you're uh, doing things in an automated fashion, how you're monitoring, all of that gets, uh, it, you pull some of the human error out of that. So I, I think that this may be an underrepresented opportunity where uh, folks in those industries could leverage, uh, you know, some of the DevOps practices to, to really enhance their stability. It's not just all about doing the latest and greatest development methodology or working with cool tools. It can actually, you know, help you bring more stability to your environment. Certainly, certainly. Uh, then if you keep going down, they, uh, they break down by department. And so it was interesting to me that, um, you know, they, they looked at basically a chunk of people identifying themselves as part of IT, a chunk as part of develop, development or engineering, um, and then only 5% was other. Um, there was a measly 3% information security representation here which is also surprising to me. I mean, when you think of SecOps and DevSecOps, which are two sort of 
subterms within the DevOps umbrella these days. Um, th those are. It was surprising to me that it was only three percent, not higher. Yeah, I'd love to see that number grow. It's it's not a practice that I've had a whole lot of exposure to, and it highlights in me, uh, I guess, how disconnected I've usually been from the security side of things. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me is people that specifically identified themselves as DevOps on a DevOps team was 29%. Um, so 14% of the people that identified themselves as DevOps were part of the IT department and 15% were part of a development or engineering department. And uh, it's kind of interesting to me that they didn't break out DevOps as its own category, which would have put it at 29% and would have been the largest team orientation. I don't know if that was maybe just to make the graph look a little better and present a little nicer on the page, but uh, I thought I thought that was a, a pretty interesting chunk that um, to, to see that businesses are organizing themselves and having a dedicated DevOps group. It is, yeah. It was a larger chunk that had a dedicated DevOps team than I expected to see, frankly. Um, and I'd, I'd love to know more about how organizations are structuring that, you know, why some consider it IT, some consider it development and engineering, yeah. um, and, and what other teams maybe that consumes it replaces yeah it'd be really interesting to see sort of a, a scatter plot or something to see you know are the companies where 15 the 15 percent that are devops are falling into development or engineering do they just not have an it department then they just don't define it in those terms or, or how that breaks down uh, i also went through and applied some data analytics to the uh, report as a whole so i did some keyword analysis and I just took the uh, the whole uh, report and cut out the footer because the footer says puppet and state of DevOps about 100 times because it's about 100 pages. And I put it into a word cloud and looked at some of the, the major uh, the major words that were listed. Um, so the word stage, services, patterns, success, business, those were all uh, major words. But um, even taking out the footer, DevOps was obviously the, the most used word at 250 occurrences uh, thereabouts. Teams was number two, stage was number three, practices was number four, um, and then business and success were number nine and 10. So I have a word cloud that I'll put on the show notes and you can you can check that out. But um, what did you think about the, uh, the the most commonly occurring words? Any Any themes that stuck out to you on that? Nothing too surprising there. Um, DevOps and teams being at the top, that certainly makes sense. Agile not even making the top 10 is a little surprising. And when I did see it in the report, it seemed like it was, you know, lowercase agile, the adjective, not mm -hmm. capital A agile, the methodology and ideology. Yeah. So according to my uh, completely imprecise calculations, agile only occurred a whopping seven times. Um, so that, that seemed really low to me. Um, data was only mentioned 43 times. Uh, and again, not really in the context of like data ops or a data team. There are a few places that like database was mentioned, or this is the data that shows X, Y, or Z. Um, so I would like to see a little bit more of how data teams or data practitioners can come into this and leverage it, um, mm -hmm. but but that didn't make it into this year's report. Surprising too, just that there isn't more talk about data involved in the DevOps you know, cycle. Right. Um, and I think that might just be a reflection of this year's report staying more high level, talking about mm -hmm. broader themes and not getting into the details as much. Yeah. And I, I guess if you imply, so we'll talk about this a little bit more in, in some of the details. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you think about terms like measurability and observability, 
all of those have to have a huge data component to it. So right. there's there's definitely data uh, applications in DevOps. It's just not clearly uh, lined out. Another one that was interesting to me is security was actually mentioned 65 times, um, which was higher than data. Um, and it shows the importance of it, um, but it wasn't mentioned in a, uh, like I said, it wasn't mentioned in like SecOps or mm -hmm. DevSecOps, which are two pretty hot buzzwords right now. And I think that might have been, like you said, the, the report wanted to stay general. It wanted to call everything DevOps and not really get into individual splinters of, of terminology or anything like that. Uh, so let's start talking about some of the different stages, which they, they kind of broke out a lot of the discussion um, into five different stages. So I'll cover these high level, but I want to get your take on, you know, when you step back and think about an, a company's journey into DevOps or a person who's just starting to get into it, mm -hmm. what should they be focusing on? Should they, should they, you know, focus on one specific activity and jump into that? Should they try to go through some progression? Um, but, but the way they broke out things in the report this year was stage zero was build the foundation. And then stage one is normalize the technology stack. Stage two, standardize and reduce variability. Stage three, expand DevOps practices. Stage four, automate infrastructure delivery. And stage five, provide self-service capabilities. So how do you group those? How do you logically think about those? Yeah, so, so reading through some of the details of how they thought of these stages and, and how companies and organizations successfully navigate these DevOps transformations. Um, number four, I think, is the one that grabs everyone's attention, right? Automation. Um, you know, when, when people start thinking about DevOps, uh, what initially seems to get all the attention is the DevOps tools. So you want your Jenkins, your Puppet, um, maybe something more specific for code deployments. Um, Definitely Docker, Kubernetes, and, and that sort of thing. But to jump straight into the tools and into the automation um, skips most of the benefits, and all you do is mechanize you know, your current state of affairs with all of its shortcomings. Um, I think most of the benefits actually come from uh, the work you do in stages one through three. So I think of, of this DevOps transformation, uh, to simplify it even further, in stage zero, where you mostly find out where you are today, and you start setting up the measures so you can understand that better and then start tracking progress as you do start making changes. Um, steps one through three are really laying the groundwork where your, your mentality and your culture change in your organization. Um, the, the improvements in the way you structure your work is really changing. Um, and then stages four and five are really just automating that so that you're not thinking about the changes now that you've made them, you've made this transformation, and then sharing it uh, through more of your organization and, and allowing non-technical aspects of your organization uh, to just access and, and use those, take advantage of that. So the way I think about it, there's a, uh, th there's a foundational practices in the five stages of DevOps evolution chart that's pretty handy in the report. I'll put this in the show notes. It's a one-page view of all five stages and the key success factors and then some of the um, secondary factors that contribute to success. And, you know, stage zero is you, you've got to be monitoring and alerting. You've got to be, um, you know, starting to do small baby steps here and there to 
learn what you need to do, learn how important sharing is and how, how important knowledge about what's going on and getting that to the, to the right people. I think there's a lot of people out there that um, might be working in a variety of different industries. They might be working in a variety of different deployment methodologies or uh, you know project methodologies, or they might just be an individual contributor, maybe a data analyst or a data scientist um, that's out there kind of operating on their own. But when you start looking at some of these factors, it helps you, uh, th there are things that you can apply just to how you communicate with your teammates, how you communicate with uh, your team and organization leaders, and uh, you know, trying to work on some of those common terminology, um, common metrics that everybody can talk about are key things that you can do, whether you're someone who uh, you know, overtly says that you do DevOps all the time or not. And then, uh, and then the later uh, stages are all how you start moving the team toward uh, some of those practices and, and start using some of the, the tools and technologies to do it. Uh, but tell me, what are some of the, the biggest takeaways that you think of from, like, like if you had to pick the biggest takeaway from, say, stage one, two, and three, mm -hmm. and then the biggest one from stage four and five, what, what do you think are the, the biggest things to focus on? Sure. Um, stages one, two, and three, um, I would say that the big theme there is giving yourself less to manage and maintain. Um, so in stage one, you're consolidating, standardizing your infrastructure, your, your sort of reducing the number of operating systems you support. Um, and, and that sort of work means that you have fewer patching schedules to keep up with and apply. Um, you have fewer architectures to worry about when you're developing new applications. Um, and then in step two, which is sort of a growth of step one, I think, um, you're reducing that to the bare minimum number of operating systems that, that you as a department need. Um, and maybe that's just one and that would be great. Um, the fewer uh, starting points you have, the more standard this gets, um, the more you can reuse, and the, the less often you have to make certain decisions about your infrastructure. Um, and you can start uh, making your deployments more uniform. Uh, multiple deployment or development teams may be using the same uh, deployment patterns, and so somebody who's not part of that team uh, needs to do less work um, deploying one versus another um, and learning the processes for each. Of course, the, the more standardized these things get, the easier they are to automate down the road, too. Mm -hmm. um, stage three, uh, largely about testing infrastructure changes. Um, the more you standardize your infrastructure, uh, the better it is that you can uh, start rolling those infrastructure changes up so you can test your infrastructure changes the same way you would test your uh, application code changes, uh, making those changes in lower environments, rolling them up, making sure that everything checks out in your tests um, before making those changes in broad, and hopefully getting to a stage where uh, if not all of your environments are uniform, um, you know, maybe you're already making changes in lower environments, you've at least seen them in lower environments. Okay. Now tell me, you said you feel like there's a little bit of a natural breaking point between one, two, and three, and then four and five. So what's the what's the differentiating factor there? What's how how do you cross that chasm? Yeah, I I've seen organizations attempt to jump in at four. Um, four automation is is the big shiny. Um, it's easy to, to show off and brag about if you do it right. It's the hey, I saw the Kubernetes uh, advertisement on the 
wall of the airport as I was walking through, and so I decided to buy that for my organization, right? Yeah. Something like that. Hey, here, here, here's this shiny tool. Go figure out how to use it. Exactly. And I guess the thing about automation is, is that it doesn't fix anything that's on its own. Mm -hmm. if, if you have shortcomings, all you've done is automate those shortcomings, and you're going to keep repeating those. Um, not to mention that it's just a lot more work to automate things that you haven't standardized. Um, it almost becomes applications of its own that you're maintaining in order to maintain your applications. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's work all the way down, and it's, it's not interesting work. Um, I think that the benefits are really coming from 1, 2, and 3, and if you jump in at automation, um, you probably figure that out pretty quickly that, okay, wait a second, this would be a lot smoother if we do go back and we standardize and we mm -hmm. consolidate and we normalize um, our, our tool sets and our patterns. So do you think that it's easier for a company to slowly go up through all of those rather than jump in at, say, stage four and have to go back? You know, like how, how big of a tax is that if you start too late in the process and then you figure out, oh man, there's there's some fundamentals here that I missed and I have to go back and, and redo. I would say that it builds in a lot of technical debt. If you jump in at four and try to run back to the beginning of these stages to try to um, create better tech practices and then re-automate those, you're doing a lot of rework. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I found interesting at stage four and five is that that's the place where they define that security policy configurations are starting to get automated. And I would like to give a little plug here. After working in uh, cybersecurity for a little while and seeing how often security is basically an afterthought, and it's something that is begrudgingly put in um, when, when it's forced upon someone, um, that it's completely necessary, but, uh, but oftentimes it gets overlooked until it's almost too late. That the, the further that you can, you know, as, as people in Agile and DevOps like to say, shift left, the further mm -hmm. that you can shift your security policies and configurations left and get that earlier in the process, the, the better off I think everybody's going to be. Your, you know, your security operations teams are going to be uh, happier. Your auditors are going to be happier. Um, you're going to be happier because you're not going to get something working and think that you've got it working just right and then figure out you've got to go re-architect something and you've got to go open up a bunch of firewall ports and change user credentials and roles to, to get it to work right. So I, that is a selfless plug from, uh, from the trenches of having to go and, and be the bad guy and ask people to, to go back and do that. So please focus on that and you know whatever it is that you're doing, if you're just writing queries, make sure that the, uh, you know, the databases that you're connecting to, you've got an individual account and you don't have a shared account that 100 people are using. Um, and if you're writing code, Make sure that you're thinking about, you know, how you how you follow standards, how you implement um, best practices and things like that as, as early as possible. Right? Because if you don't do that, you're just going to have rework that you layer on top of yourself. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think the the way that DevOps has really reinforced this idea that operations shouldn't be so distinctly separate from development mm -hmm. uh, is absolutely every bit as true of security. Um, it's often treated as this separate thing that you, you deal with later, but it, it really should be um, part of the process from the beginning. It is absolutely as much a part of the work as the development or the infrastructure. So I want to shift gears now. Uh, well, actually, first, is there anything else you want to talk about on the stages? I think we hit that. Uh, yeah, you know what? I kind of missed stage five. Um, stage five is, is important in a way that I kind of overlooked. Um, 
it's it's sharing with the rest of your organization the work that you've been able to do. So if you've automated something, you don't need um, somebody from another department to call up somebody on your team when they need an update or something done. Mm -hmm. um, then that's great because they can get things when they need. They're not tying up your time. Um, so it benefits the whole organization, but also you're creating another feedback loop. You've got new sets of eyes on the work you've been doing, um, new input as, as to things that might benefit your organization. Um, and so sharing and, and getting those things out there sooner, uh, I think is valuable perspective and data for your continuing operations. That's very good to think about. Uh, I, I want to change gears and talk about uh, an acronym that they have in here, and it's actually something they consider so important that they devoted a whole section to it, and it's called CAMS. Uh, so CAMS stands for Culture, Automation, Measurability, and Sharing. And these are basically four of the critical success factors to DevOps. Uh, something that I found interesting about it is um, that the authors basically said, hey, based on our experience, these are the four biggest contributors to success and that your success will be driven when you have this come up from one or more teams rather than having it be a top-down initiative. And so it's almost something that has to start grassroots to be effective. Um, so let's go over what those four mean and which ones we think are most important. You wanna you wanna go over the each of the areas. What is, what does culture mean to you in a DevOps yeah. uh, context? So so DevOps culture, um, much like Agile culture, is not about a tool set. It's it's about um, sort of an ideology, uh, a behavior, um, a mindset about how you want to operate. Um, so having that be the starting point for your DevOps practice. Um, this is, these are the kinds of information we want to act on. These are the kinds of standards we want to set for ourselves. Um, I think is the foundation on which the rest of this is built. And then automation, I kind of think of that as concentric circles that get wider and wider and talk about more and more things that you can automate. You can automate the building of infrastructure and VMs and, and you can then automate patching of those systems. You can automate the policies and the configurations that go onto them. You can automate the applications that go onto them and how you deploy those. You can automate the access to those applications. You can automate the alerts that you put on those applications, the auditing of those applications, and even the interactions that a human would normally do. And then you can start doing things like RPA on that. So you just keep getting wider and wider with, with what you can automate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, two of the, the huge things you get from automation, obviously, you're spending a lot less time on things that you probably don't want to be spending a lot of time and attention on. Um, but you get repeatability, you know, that's going to be done the same way every time. And you get auditability. Um, you know that it's being done the same way every time. You can see the steps that are going to be done because they're coded out. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully, hopefully, you're, you have some measurements and some logging around those steps so you can confirm that that is what happened and how it happened. And then measurability is next. And this is one that's near and near to my heart, of course, because I'm a data junkie. Um, but also, you know, whether you are talking about uh, someone who's a proponent of management by fact, or you're talking about someone who is, uh, you know, an ops ninja that uh, looks at things like observability and measurability and 
application monitoring and alerting, whether it's through Dynatrace or some other application monitoring tool, or whether you're someone that's a data practitioner who spends their time, uh, you know, either looking at the data quality in, inside of the system or writing queries to assess, uh, you know, to find insights about the data. Almost everything you do has some amount of measurability. But tell me what, what it means to you as a DevOps practitioner. Oh, measurability is your weapon. Uh, especially if you're low on the totem pole, right? So, so measurability tells you how well you're doing compared to how well you're doing before. You know where you're improving. You know where you can improve. Um, but if you need to convince somebody that some effort needs to be spent somewhere, having that data to back you up is invaluable. To say that, hey, you might not have noticed this. This might have been hidden before. But we're spending this much time and, and effort on, on maintenance or, or rework or bug fixes mm -hmm. that we could eliminate by practices A, B, and C. Yeah, I think it's all about finding those hidden insights. And then sharing is number four. And um, how you bring those insights up, how you foster a culture of sharing and openness and transparency and being able to... Uh, you know, remove the silos of data or operational reports or different people doing things slightly differently. The more that you can share and be on a common uh, platform of what you're looking at, what you're doing, what your goal is, I think is, is definitely key. Anything else that you have to add on sharing? I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, another benefit of sharing, of course, is just that if, if your team has to work on a deployment and another team is working on a deployment, you may be replicating a lot of work. Um, that doesn't need to be replicated. Uh, the other thing too is just uh, showing off a little bit. You know, once you've achieved some of these automations and some of these self-service features, um, being able to share that with the rest of the companies, it feels good. Absolutely. Uh, okay, anything else on CAMs? Actually, I, I have one other thing. I want us to go through and I want you to tell me how you would rank those four uh, four terms and wh what you consider most important and what you consider still important but a little bit less important. Sure, yeah. I mean, I I think they pick the, the most important four, of course, and, and they are really meant to be taken as a whole, but I do agree that culture should come first. I agree with I that. I don't think you get very far without getting the mindset straight and the motivation right. Mm-hmm. Um, automation, I think, might be overemphasized. I think you can get a lot of these benefits without it. Um, there is a lot of benefits to be had, but I, th I think it shouldn't be focused on until you've got some of the other things uh, pretty well established. Okay. Um, I think measurability, um, the M in CAMS, is one of those things that should be established. Yep. Uh, I think sh it should inform what you spend your time on first and what you prioritize, uh, and it's going to tell you how much progress you're making once you do start things like automation. Yeah, I agree. So I think, I think culture is number one. I think we both agree measurability is number two. What's, what's three and four for you? This, this is tough. Um, obviously, automation is something that benefits a lot from being shared. And so you, you could say that that comes first, but I might actually put sharing first. Um, if you skip automation and you just share uh, infrastructure patterns or practices with other teams that have similar work, uh, I think there's a lot of value to be had there. And that's, I would say, even more core to a healthy DevOps practice than automation. Yeah. I think you're right. I think so. For me, it's CMSA, which obviously is not as good of an abbreviation as CAMS. SIMSA just doesn't have the the same ring to it. But I also feel like if you were to do those in that order, culture, then measurability, then sharing, then automation. If you hold automation to the end, it's going to be so much easier to do the right automations. 
and to really sort of level up and start moving exponentially faster at that time. Absolutely. So I, I don't think you're going if, if to, you, if you do get into that a little bit early and you don't have the other things in place, that's going to lead to that rework. It's going to lead to some stumbling um, and, and it's going to lead to some challenges. Yeah. I think of automation as a, as a magnifier. It's a, it's a force multiplier. So everything that you're doing well is going to be great and everything that you're doing poorly is going to be terrible. And if automation is what it takes for you to see some of those things that you weren't doing as well as you thought, well, then that's not such a bad thing. Uh, but anything that you can improve before you get to the automation stage, obviously, is going to save you a lot of heartache. All right. Well, so we're getting kind of close to the end. I do want to talk about one other thing, and, and then if there's any other topics you want to cover. Page 30 had some interesting insights for me. Uh, so one of the things that they did with this survey is they broke out um, who the respondents were by C-suite, by management, and team. And we actually didn't talk about that when we were talking about some of the demographic breakouts, but C-suite was about 9% of the overall respondents, which I thought was probably higher than the you know average per capita uh, number of roles in an organization. Mm -hmm. I uh, you know if I think of a hundred thousand person uh, large global company, I don't know that nine percent of those would be C-level executives responding to a survey. Um, but uh, but so I think they did a great job getting representation from the C-suite, regardless of the method that they had to do to, to get that. Uh, but when they broke down some of the perceptions of DevOps, this is where it got really interesting. So page 30 has a number of different questions that they asked, like incident responses are automated, um, success metrics for projects are visible, service changes can be made during business hours. And then they reported what each, um, each level uh, said that they were doing, C-suite management and team. And there were some pretty striking differences between what the team level was reporting and what the C-suite was reporting. Any of those stick out in your mind specifically? I think maybe the, the most stark example is uh, teams contribute improvements to tooling provided by other teams. Uh, and I, I don't know why that one is the one that sticks out so much, um, but C-suite reports that at 64%. Teams reported at 35 C-suite is almost yeah, almost dealt yeah, the success rate there, or the success reporting. And I would say that that was the shocking thing to me is almost across the board, it's it's like a uh, you know 1.5 to 2x overstatement of of the numbers here, um, which I, you know I was thinking it was it would be more like a five to ten percent difference, you know something that's statistically significant, mm -hmm. but not something that is almost double. Uh, another one that was interesting to me: incident responses are automated. Only 29% of teams said they were actually doing that, whereas 57% of C-suite said they were. And the thing that I don't know about on this is, um, you know, how uh, how much liberty are the different groups taking? Are the teams being fairly prescriptive and trying to respond to the letter of the phrase? So if they say instant responses are automated, they're looking at the whole soup to nuts, whereas maybe someone on the C-suite is saying, hey, if I get a if I get an email about a SEV one or something like that, then yeah, okay, it's it's automated. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where that disparity is coming from, but it's 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 pretty stark to me. For sure, yeah. I I think the report authors call out that you know as you report news up the management chain, maybe you embellish a little bit, you exaggerate exaggerate a little bit. Um, and I think that's I often exaggerate, just so you know. <laughs> Um, I, but it doesn't seem to be enough to, to account for that disparity, does it? No. It, 
yeah, I was I was shocked to, to see that it was that much. So if I have some time, I go back in and reread that section and see uh, uh, see what what led to some of those differences. Yeah. Well, so that's a that's a pretty good uh, survey of the DevOps report. Like I said, you can you can find this on our show notes, or if you just Google "State of DevOps 2018," you'll find a billion links to it. Is there anything else that uh, that you'd like to add, Greg? Uh, no, I think that uh, that pretty well covers what I see in the report. Um, only that you know, DevOps is a an evolving and growing process. It's it's a growing ideology, an evolving ideology. Um, that I think merits looking into if you're part of a, a, an organization that hasn't really looked into a lot of these practices yet. Very good. Well, thanks again very much for joining me and talking about this. Uh, where can people get in touch with you if they wanted to connect and learn about what you're up to? Is, is LinkedIn the best place? or? Uh... Sure, LinkedIn is a good place to start. Um, I will give that URL to Rob to include in the show notes. Okay, very good. Well, thanks again for joining me on uh, take two of this State of the DevOps. Hopefully we'll get through the editing and we won't have to go for third time being a charm. I think we've got it this time. Good talking to you, Rob. Yeah, I'll have to bring you back next time for, uh, for next year's report. Happy to be there. All right, thanks. We hope you're enjoying the For the Love of Data podcast. If you are, please support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts, such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. To stay plugged in to all things data, subscribe to our mailing list at fortheloveofdata.com. You can also find show notes for all of our episodes on the website as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic or ideas for future episodes. To get in touch, tweet us. We're at loveofdata or at Robert Fur on Twitter. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, keep spreading the love of data to the world around you.